Well, I don't know about you, but I'm in constant need of reminders. If it's not planned in my phone or written down in my diary, it's out of sight, out of mind. Can you relate to that? Um, some of you use different ways to remind yourself. It may not be on a diary. It may not be on your phone. It, you, perhaps you're, you're a little bit old school and you use sticky notes or you might even tie a string around your finger. Um, you know, you, you write things down like, remember to pick up milk on the way home, right? Uh, call your mother. It's her birthday today. Uh, don't forget to change the oil in your car. Uh, whatever it happens to be, um, we need reminders or we forget. The Apostle Paul is well aware of this reality. So he tells Titus to remind the churches, of, remind the churches on Crete of something absolutely crucial. Titus, look, I realize they already know it. But this is so mission critical, you must remind them of something. You, you, you have to remind them that they need to be obedient to civil authorities. And they need to love those outside of the church and society. That's what we see unfolding as we open up. <coughs> to Titus 3. Titus has a job to do. He's to remind these guys about their relation to the government and their relation to society at large, meaning to all people, even, even non-Christians. We've learned a lot in Titus 2 about people inside the church, and, and now as we come to chapter 3, we sort of look beyond outside the walls of the church, so to speak, and how we're to behave as, as citizens to the government and to non-Christians that we interact with, rub shoulders with. Does that make sense? So as followers of Jesus, we're not to forget about our civil duties, nor our social duties. That is our relationships with the government and humanity in general. And as always, and I think Dan did a great job explaining this during the kid spot, Paul doesn't just hit us with a bunch of rules like, you know, this and this. I mean, we're going to see a lot of that, but he, he grounds all of this in the gospel. So he doesn't just say, go, 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 do, 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 but he, he does those things, but he he's fuels us with God's grace. So here's our roadmap as we look at these verses. Verse 1, a reminder about rulers. Verse 1, a reminder about rulers. Verse 2, a reminder about relationships. Verse 3 and following, a reminder about redemption. A reminder about rulers. A reminder about relationships. A reminder about redemption. That's our roadmap as we look to God's word. Now let's look to God in prayer and ask that he would bless this time as we open his word together as a church family. Will you pray with me? 
Gracious God, you know that we have a real enemy this morning, that he would have us become sleepy, bored, or distracted during this time. It might be something as simple as what we might eat for lunch or the different tasks that we need to complete at work or home. Lord, it doesn't take much to lose our focus on you. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, give us faith and maturity to grow in grace. We thank you, Lord, for another privilege of coming to your word. And we pray that you would do no less than another miracle like you did last Sunday and the one before. Remind us of your grace and its implications in our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So years ago, some, some of you have already heard this, I used to live in Hawaii, in Hawaii, or Hawaii, or however you guys say it here, I don't know, but it's you're supposed to say Hawaii, all right? So I used to live in Hawaii, hence the shirt, and, um, and my father-in-law uh, actually got me these funny, he got me a Christmas gift, and it was quite funny. Um, it was these little notes, kind of like sticky notes, and it had Hawaiian pigeon on it, and they were reminders, and it said, just had a guy with a little thona shaka, meaning he's like a hang loose sign, okay? And, and it said, eh, no forget, right? Like, that's pigeon, like, don't forget, okay? Um, when we come to Titus 3, that's basically what Paul's doing with Titus. I know the churches are aware of this, but it's so crucial, I need you to refresh their memory so they no forget. And, and what can't they forget? What what can't slip their mind, as it were? That they need to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey the powers that be. Come to Titus chapter 3, verse 1. That's how he starts off this reminder. I want you to see it with your own eyes here. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work. Now, why did Paul write that? I mean, it could have been because the people on Crete were a bit notorious for constantly involving themselves in insurrections and the like. That could be. We're not exactly sure. It's certainly not the only place in Scripture where Paul talks about this in Romans 13 and other places. He, he gives this same principle. He talks about this as Christians, we're to have this obligation to the state, as it were. Now, when he mentions rulers and authorities, that pretty much covers the spectrum of government officials, from national down to local. So for us, be that parate, albo, local MPs, or police officers here on the coast. And, and what are we to do? What is our posture to be to them? We are to be subject to obey the powers that be. Now, because you're Westerners, I can guess what you're probably thinking. And Aussies love, <coughs> you guys love authority, right? Well, you do in a just dichotomy way, but anyway, I won't, I won't get distracted by that. So, I bet some of you are thinking, well, yeah, but if they tell us to bow the knee to someone else, we're not going to do that. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And if they tell us, 
okay, all right, yeah, 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 yeah. I get that, I get that. Um, there's certainly a time and a place where you don't want to capitulate. There's certainly a time for civil disobedience, but that's not what this flow of this passage is actually talking about. Um, the thrust is to be submissive and to be respectful of the authorities that God has placed over you. That said, I, I doubt any of you this week were plotting a coup against your own government, right? Or scheming up some method to overthrow, right, civil authorities. I doubt that's the case. But I wonder how your posture is towards civil authorities, towards people that are above you at the moment. Like if you step back for just a second and do some honest soul searching in this area, how would you rate yourself? Would you give yourself an A, a B, C? Do you recognize the particular authorities that God has placed over you? Not just civil authorities, but perhaps your boss. Do you live in such a way that demonstrates obedience to them? You see, whenever it is possible under God, friend, we must be the most upstanding citizens in our community to follow the laws. We are to abide by traffic regulations. We are to pay our taxes on time, not looking for ways to cut corners. We want to follow the codes and regulations that are set in place. Probably not a shock. We've talked about this before. If you've been around church long enough, you might have read Romans 13 and 1 Peter and some other bits and pieces of the Bible, and you go, yeah, I've kind of heard this stuff. But have a closer look at verse 1, friend, because it's one thing to obey or to subject yourself to what the law says. I mean, who wants to get a speeding ticket? Who wants to go to end up in jail, right? Even non-Christians can say, yeah, well, I guess I don't want, I don't want to deal with that. But hold on. Don't miss the last bit of it. Ready for every good work. Seriously? I'm just to be switched on. I'm to be prepared for this. I'm to be like, like my, my general posture is to be kind of like poised and ready, prepared. It's like the, I, I love watching the Olympics and the, you know, the sprint or the dash or whatever you want to call it. And, they, and the runners come up, right? Runners take your mark. And they've been preparing for this their whole life. And, you know, they don't walk up and they're like, right, they, you know, ready, new mark, get set, bang. Like they're, they're poised. They're ready, right? That image of being poised and ready should reflect our relation to the government and those that are in authority over us, that we are actually ready to be obedient. That's easy. Kidding. But you know, some folks believe they have a responsibility to submit to authority only as long as they agree with it, or as long as it seems fair in their eyes, or as long as it doesn't require too much inconvenience. But that's not what Paul's saying, is he? He doesn't give a little parenthesis there. And kids, this would be applicable to you. You have an authority of your life, it's your mom and your dad. They are the authorities over your life, so you are to be poised and ready to listen, to follow, to obey what your mom and dad say. They are the authorities in your life. 
But Paul doesn't say, unless you don't really want to and you're tired and they didn't give you a lolly. No, no, no. Look, we may not agree with every policy the government enacts, friends. We may not be aligned with the same political party as those currently in power. There may be signs of corruption, and Lord knows there has been. Nevertheless, we are reminded to submit ourselves to the powers that be and to pray for them. That's our reminder about rulers and authorities. Now, turn to verse 2, because when we turn there, Paul, Paul shifts from talking about our obligations toward governing authorities to discussing our obligations toward all people, those inside and outside the church. And it's amazing. If you look in verse 2, notice the very first obligation we have towards people, even non-Christians for that matter, has to do with what we say about them or better yet, what we choose not to say. Notice the reminder that comes in verse 2. To speak evil of no one. This has the idea of slandering or speaking ill or discrediting somebody. You ever heard the term blasphemy before? That's literally that word there. Blaspheme. You know, some people might have, maybe you had a family member that overused that word, right? Everything was blasphemy, right? You're going to the movies? Blasphemy. You're going out for lunch? Blasphemy. You're mowing the lawn on Sunday? Blasphemy or what? whatever, right? But that's what it says. It's to blaspheme no one, to demean them by what you say, you know, behind their back, to tear them down with your words. Now, for the record, I don't think this idea erases the need to confront sin or error or to somehow become naive about all the evil we see around us. Paul has certainly called a spade a spade several times throughout Titus, has he not? So what does he mean then to speak evil? I mean, he called the people, uh, remember, what does he say here? Look, uh, yeah, well, he said the Cretan bit, but um, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, right? They're they're debauched, they're derelicts, they're, you know, so on and so forth. Come on, aren't you speaking evil of them, Paul? You shot yourself in the foot, right? No. What does it mean to speak evil of someone? And, and, and what is this thing with non-Christians? Again, it's, it's, to, it's to blaspheme, it's to discredit that person. Now, let me bring this home for you. I want you to think for a moment. I'll give you 20 seconds. It's not time to take a nap. 20 seconds. Think of someone you know right now, not a Christian, someone who's not a Christian, perhaps someone you work with that is, maybe someone you work with, maybe it's an old friend or whatever, that is super difficult to get on with. They are just sandpaper in your life. Like, you often ask yourself, what the heck is this guy and this gal's problem? Okay, do you have that person in mind? I'll give you just 20 seconds. Don't say their name out loud, especially if it's me. I'm a Christian, so that doesn't work. This thing is just not time to nod off. Think of someone. 
That's probably close enough. Everyone have that person in mind? Someone that's just grading to you? So given your history with that person, man, it's all too easy to think and to speak ill of them, right? Maybe during your lunch break, you overhear others talking about this person. And fair enough, you've noticed the same thing. And they're going, oh, did you? And, and you hear it and you go, yeah, actually, you guys only know the half of it. And, and in that moment, it's, it's, it's easy, friend, to slide into saying things we ought not. It might be that we forget or get carried away in the moment or feel pressured to conform or vent our frustrations, which is why Paul says we need a reminder. As Christians, we are to slander no one. We must refrain from that. As difficult as that person is. And even now, maybe you're trying to get your mind off that person because they're kind of just sitting on your mind right now and they're frustrating you. We're actually going to come circle back to that person in just a minute. Psalm 34, 13, listen to this. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Now, if I just close the Bible, that would be challenging enough, right? But Paul pushes it even further with two terms that go together. Not only are we to speak evil, to blaspheme, to tear someone down with our words, but we're to be peaceable and gentle. Have a look at verse 2 again. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. This means to have a non-combative demeanor. We are not to be edgy or harsh with people. This doesn't imply doormat Christianity, or we're called to be bland. No, God made an infinite variety of personalities. And as He redeems those personalities, He'll transform them to be a unique expression of His new creation. You may be courageous, you may be reserved, you may be opinionated, you may go with the flow. Regardless of our personality, if we are a child of God, it will be marked by gentleness and kindness and meekness. You'll be characterized by warmth rather than abrasiveness. You'll demonstrate courtesy. Notice there in the text, to all people, the person that you thought of earlier. Now, a good test case of this, gentleness and meekness, can be found close to home. Parents, would your kids say that you are gentle with them? Husbands, would your wives say that you are tender towards them? You come home from a long day and they want to talk and, and are you kind of there but not there? Bosses, would your employer say that you're kind even when the bottom line is not being met? <laughs> think of the, think for a moment, think of the infinite power that God has. He could unleash at any moment to squash anybody, any of his enemies. 
Yet Jesus Christ at his first coming didn't come to demonstrate his wrath and judgment. Not yet. He will do that in his second coming. But instead, when he came, even while we were still his enemies, Jesus demonstrated his power in his meekness by dying in our place. That is meekness. That is power under control. Remember when Jesus was being arrested? He says, don't you know I could call on like legions of angels right now and just destroy these guys? But he, he did not retaliate. He did not fight back. As Isaiah 53 says, like a sheep that's led to the slaughter. But when he comes again, he will come in judgment and in wrath. But he is, he is our trailblazer. He, he did not vile, he did not return evil for evil. He was meek. That's power under control. And so Paul says, remind people that as... And it's interesting, the mere fact that he says, look, don't speak evil of them. You need to be meek and gentle. He doesn't say it, but it's kind of like a nice reminder because it's these people are going to require you to be these things. <laughs> right? You're going to want to speak evil of them. They're, they're quite going to be annoying. And, and you're actually going to not, not want to be meek. You're, gonna not, you're actually going to want to be argumentative with them. But, but you're not to be, friend. You're not to be. I mean, imagine just this room. I don't know, however many, however many people are in this room. Imagine if we were the most upstanding citizens, like, and toward the government and in our employees. Just imagine how people would be like, what's going on in that random red building across from the, you know, theater or whatever? What the heck is going on there? Those people are just so different in a good way. Like, I want to hire, are they, are those any of those people hiring? You know, as as a, a witness, hopefully it was, when I went to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, so many of the surrounding people, like, you know, different employers wanted to hire the Seminary students, thankfully, not the other way around. Why? Because they didn't try to clock out early. They didn't do sort of half jobs. They did, they eat, or they drink, do all to the glory of God. I mean, that, so I, I specifically remember I was working at a hotel there, and this guy said, do you know of any other seminary guys? I said, yeah, I, I know tons. Uh, and he's like, because I'd love to hire as many of them as I could get because I, they're the best employees I can get. Well, that's a good witness. Thankfully, he didn't say the opposite. They're the worst, you know. Great. No, they're, they're, they're the hardest working guys. They're honest. They're not going to steal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Paul says that's how, that's, how, that's how we're to be in the community around us. We're, we're to be considerate, courteous, courteous, courteous to all. We're, we're to be aware of our surroundings. We're, we're, we're to know that we're not just that average Joe going to the Wyoming shops just, you know, doing our thing, but what, we, we're actually like Christ ambassadors. We're, we're new creations. And, and look, people, have I said this before, people are watching. You may not realize it, but people are watching your life. So that's our relationship reminder. That's our relationship reminder. Now, Let's be real, okay? So a lot of you nodding your heads because it's 
biblical stuff. All this is true. Submission to government, not bad-mouthing the obnoxious person in your life, showing patience to everybody. Yep, let's be real. That is tough. In fact, I don't know about you, but I'm going to struggle to follow through with this week, probably this afternoon. All right? So how do you go about obeying this? I mean, this is God's word after all, so we don't want to just kind of hear it and obey it like out here and then disjointedly live a different life, right? So what, so what, we don't want to set it aside. We want to compartmentalize things. So what do we do? How do we, how do, we do this then? Like, is there any spiritual petrol to fuel us, to motivate us? Yes. Remember Dan said the most important thing about this passage we need to pull our car over to verse 3 because Paul is going to remind us what we were and what we are now, what we were before Jesus and what we are now. That's our fuel. That's the basis for obedience. Don't miss how verse 3 begins. Four, four, here's what you were. Here's what... You and me and all of us were, we were once this. And Paul paints, he paints this really dark picture, but it accurately reflects people outside of Christ. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves, notice he includes himself in there as well. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Doesn't end there though, does it? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. You see what he's doing? He's contrasting the past and the present. He's comparing our state in sin and our state in grace. These few sentences, they're just like dripping with gospel truth. In light of what we were before Jesus and now what we are because of being in Jesus. I mean, Remember I said I was going to circle back to that difficult person? Sorry to put them in your mind again, but just think for a second. You know the person that's really, the sandpaper in your life, super hard to get along with? Not a Christian? Now considered where you were before knowing Jesus. You too. Yes, you. Were once just as sinful and lost and selfish and annoying and difficult. But God saved you. He saved you. That should give you a proper perspective. That should cause a spiritual soft spot in your heart for people who are currently like what you used to be. That's what Paul's saying. For we ourselves. You know, he's talking about, oh man, this and this and this and this. And you're like, oh, I know people that like fit the bill of all those things. Yeah, yourself outside of grace. Maybe far worse you know, this week, I was catching up with some friends, and, this, and the waitress brought out our food, and she had 222 written right there, 
And I said, what is that? And she goes, angel numbers. And, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then my buddy was like, dude, she's demonic. And I was like, really? And then I asked what it is, and she goes, oh, well, you know, this is my omen and blah, 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 blah. And, and he goes, she's just wicked, you know, to my And I said, yes. And James, no one in this room, James, I know your past, and you were really wicked when you used to live in San Diego and do all those things on the weekends. Such were some of you. And I was you on steroids and that girl all plus. There for the grace of God go I. You see? Such were some of you. We once were this. Now, in closing, I want to give a brief overview of verses 4 through 7. And it's so juicy. I'm like, that's it. I can't just give a brief overview, so we're coming back to it next week. I was like, I, I, it's too good, man. It's, it's, there's too much there. I was like, we're spending a, especially Dan set me up like last week with an amazing passage, and I was kind of jealous, and then I was like, oh, that's such, a good, that's such a good text. And I was like, well, I get this text. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm not giving an overview. I'm going all, so we're going full bore next week, just, just the passage, okay? So if you have, want to have a go memorizing that one, you can do that as well, okay? All right, so, but let's just quickly go through it because it's, it's remember, this is the most important bit. You know, for all the sticky notes that Dan had, and this is, the, this is the most important bit. This is the gospel fuel. Without this, you're basically just a good Mormon, okay? And the Mormons are nicer than anybody in this room. But they're lost, okay? You're just in a cult. Without this, you're just a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic person, okay? Without this, you're just someone that's just, and you're just self-righteous, because you're just trying, you just feel better about yourself because you are better than the ne person next to you. But in God's sight, you're guilty. And that's why you need Christ. I'll let the text do the preaching. So let's look at the why, the how, and the result, okay? The why, the how, and the result. Why, the first question, why is it that sinners are saved through God's Son? Verse 4, it's the character of God. Can you see it? Why? Well, notice verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Do you see what Paul's saying? Why are sinners saved through God's Son? God's character. Loving kindness. Our salvation flows from the goodness of God. It was not because we deserved it or by any virtue of our own doing. Look at verse 5. It's not what we did, right? He, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Wait, ho hold on, though. I mean, didn't I say that this has kind of been known as the epistle of good works? And we've seen good works all over the place, right? So hasn't Paul been insisting on good works? And now it's like, well, not because of good works. Yes, good works are all throughout the letter, but never as the cause for our acceptance with God. Make sense? It's not the cause. It's the fruit. It's not the root, if you want to rhyme. It's only, well, what's the root then? It's only the Lord's mercy. Can you see it there in the text? You see, mercy is never deserved. Mercy shows pity to save because of its own compassion and love. 
Mercy is the response of a good and loving God towards sinners. Listen, the reality is in salvation, God is always the subject and we are the objects. So that's the why. What about the, how did it happen then though? How did it happen? That's the why, God's character, yeah, yeah. So we get that, but if God's looking at us and he's kind and he's loving and then how did how did it how did it happen well verse 5 he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy notice here here's the how by the washing here's a big two dollar word of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Regeneration, that's a big word, right? It basically just means to be born again. Born again. Wayne Grudem helpfully says, regeneration is the secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. That's a little helpful phrase. Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. God saved us. How? Not by this, works, but through this, regeneration. We'll dive into that more. But what's the result? What's the result? You're like, oh, you're moving on? I, we got to, man. It'll be next, come next week. What's the result then? Talked about the, the why, the how. Well, the result comes in verse 7. Verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you had a marker or highlighter with you and you wanted to underline or highlight just one part, look at the line there, justified by his grace. Can you see it? Justified by his grace. Grace, that might be one of the greatest statements in the book of Titus. Listen, I don't think any Christian who has come to understand something about his or her salvation can truly get it until they grasp what it means to be justified by God's grace. You understand? Behind the notion of justification stands the need for sinners to be justified, to be declared righteous, which then means what? We are not righteous. I know people here and in Western culture try talking to anyone who's not a Christian, and and they'll say, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Nine times out of ten, do you know what they'll say? Well, I'm, I'm a pretty good what? I'm a pretty good person. No, you are not. And nor am I. We need to be declared righteous in God's sight. Because justice is rooted in God's character. And since no one living is righteous before him, and because God will by no means clear the guilty, Ezekiel 34.7, there needs to be a righteous substitute. Still tracking with me? Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ 
enables, provides justification for his people. He is the substitute. The gospel message offers sinners a right standing before God on the basis of their good works, of being a good person, of trying hard, of coming to church regularly, of singing here, of clapping. No. On the basis of Jesus dying in their place so that God is able to declare them righteous if by faith and faith alone they look to Christ to be saved. That is a glorious truth. Justified. Thank you, Jenny. Jenny's excited about it. Do you realize that's all you've got? That's all you've got. That's the only bullet in your gun. I know that that, that thing doesn't work here, that bullet gun thing. Well, I don't know, your mace or whatever you use. For, you know. Yeah, well, Ralph, I know you got all kinds of stuff. That's all, that's all you got. Yeah, I, I'm honestly, that, that's, that, that, that's it. I don't care how long you've been coming to church. I don't care how many good deeds you've done. I don't care how many mission trips you've been on. I don't care how many prayers you've prayed. I don't care how, well, it doesn't matter. It's faith in Christ as a substitute dying in your place so that God can look at you. I mean, what do you think is going to happen if you, if you die outside of Christ? Like, I know, I know Westerners, we think really high of ourselves, and then we're going to, and God's going to be like, oh, I couldn't wait to meet you in person. Woo, look at you. Oh, I could give you a big squeeze. Is that, I mean, no. It will be, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you understand? That, but if you're in Christ, when he sees you, because of Jesus' work, his, his obedience to the Father, all of Jesus' life, Jesus' death is now given to you, placed on you, so that when he sees you, he didn't see you necessarily, he sees Christ, his work on your behalf. But you are still you because you are purchased by him. That's, that's all you got. But that is, the, that is a glorious truth, justified by his grace. It's grace and grace alone, as we just sang. And that's how we slay our sin. That will keep us to the end. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you again that we can be justified by your grace because of Jesus and Jesus alone. May our ears never grow dull of that. May our hearts never just become calloused and just be sick of hearing it. Lord, may we relish, delight, swim in these gospel truths that we can be justified by grace through faith. And it's in Jesus alone that we are, are this reality. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So friend, if you are justified by his